0: Chapter Twenty of Izzy Popenjoy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. Izzy Popenjoy by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Twenty. Between Two Stools. In the middle of the next week, the dean went back to Brotherton. Before starting, he had an interview with Lord George, which was not altogether pleasant but otherwise he had thoroughly enjoyed his visit on the day on which he started he asked his host what inquiries he intended to set on foot in reference to the validity of the italian marriage and the legitimacy of the italian baby now lord george had himself in the first instance consulted the dean on this very delicate subject and was therefore not entitled to be angry at having it again mentioned but nevertheless he resented the question as an interference i think he replied that at present nothing had better be said upon the subject i cannot agree with you there george then i am afraid i must ask you to be silent without agreeing with me the dean felt this to be intentionally uncivil they two were in a boat together the injury to be done if there were an injury would affect the wife as much as the husband The baby which might some day be born, and which might be robbed of his inheritance, would be as much the grandchild of the dean of Brotherton as of the old Marquis. And then, perhaps, there was present to the dean some unacknowledged feeling that he was paying and would have to pay for the boat. Much as he revered rank, he was not disposed to be snubbed by his son-in-law, because his son-in-law was a nobleman. "'You mean to tell me that I am to hold my tongue?' he said angrily. For the present, I think we had both better do so.' "'That may be, as regards any discussion of the matter with outsiders. I am not at all disposed to act apart from you on a subject of such importance to us both. If you tell me what you are advised this way or that, I should not, without very strong ground, put myself in opposition to that advice. But I do expect that you will let me know what is being done.' "'Nothing is being done.' and also that you will not finally determine on doing nothing without consulting me." Lord George drew himself up and bowed, but made no further reply, and then the two parted, the dean resolving that he would be in town again before long, and Lord George resolving that the dean should spend as little time as possible in his house. Now there had been an undertaking, after a sort, made by the dean, a compact with his daughter contracted in a jocose fashion which in the existing circumstances was like to prove troublesome. There had been a question of expenditure when the house was furnished, whether there should or should not be a carriage kept. Lord George had expressed an opinion that their joint means would not suffice to keep a carriage. Then the dean had told his daughter that he would allow her three hundred pounds a year for her own expenses to include the brougham, for it was to be no more than a brougham, during the six months they would be in London and that he would regard this as his subscription towards the household. Such a mode of being generous to his own child was pretty enough. Of course the dean would be a welcome visitor. Equally, of course, a son-in-law may take any amount of money from a father-in-law as a portion of his wife's fortune. Lord George, though he had suffered some inward qualms, had found nothing in the arrangement to which he could object, while his friendship with the deanery was close and pleasant. But now, as the dean took his departure, and as mary while embracing her father said something of his being soon back lord george remembered the compact with inward grief and wished that there had been no brougham in the meantime he had not been to bartley square nor was he at all sure that he would go there a distant day had been named before that exciting interview in the square on which the houghtons were to dine in munster court the Mildmay's were also to be there, and Mrs. Montacute Jones, and old Lord Parachute, Lord George's uncle. That would be a party, and there would be no danger of a scene then. He had almost determined that, in spite of his promise, he would not go to Berkeley Square before the dinner. But Mrs. Houghton was not of the same mind. A promise on such a subject was a sacred thing, and therefore she wrote the following note to Lord George at his club. The secrecy which some correspondence requires certainly tends to make the club a convenient arrangement. Why don't you come as you said you would? A. In olden times, fifteen or twenty years ago, when telegraph wires were still young and messages were confined to diplomatic secrets, horse-racing and the rise and fall of stocks, lovers used to indulge in rapturous expressions which would run over pages. But the pith and strength of laconic diction has now been taught to us by the self-sacrificing patriotism of the post office. We have all felt the vigor of telegrammatic expression, and even when we do not trust the wire, we employ the force of wiry language. Wilt thou be mine, M. N., is now the ordinary form of an offer by marriage by post, and the answer seldom goes beyond Ever thine, P. Q. Adelaide Houghton's love-letter was very short, but it was short from judgment and with a settled purpose. She believed that a long epistle declaratory of her everlasting but unfortunate attachment would frighten him. These few words would say all that she had to say, and would say it safely. He certainly had promised that he would go to her, and, as a gentleman, he was bound to keep his word. He had mentioned no exact time, but it had been understood that the visit was to be made at once he would not write to her heaven and earth how would it be with him if mr houghton were to find the smallest scrap from him indicating improper affection for mrs houghton he could not answer the note and therefore he must go at once he went into a deserted corner of a drawing-room at his club and there seated himself for half an hour's meditation how should he extricate himself from this dilemma in what language should he address a young and beautiful woman devoted to him but whose devotion he was bound to repudiate. He was not voluble in conversation, and he was himself aware of his own slowness. It was essential to him that he should prepare beforehand almost the very words for an occasion of such importance, the very words and gestures and action. Would she not fly into his arms, or at least expect that he should open his own? That must be avoided. There must be no embracing and then he must at once proceed to explain all the evils of this calamitous passion how he was the husband of another wife how she was the wife of another husband how they were bound by honour by religion and equally by prudence to remember the obligations they had incurred he must beg her to be silent while he said all this and then he would conclude by assuring her that she should always possess his steadiest friendship the excogitation of this took long partly because his mind was greatly exercised in the matter, and partly through a nervous desire to postpone the difficult moment. At last, however, he seized his hat and went away straight to Berkeley Square. Yes, Mrs. Houghton was at home. He had feared that there was but little chance that she should be out on the very day on which she knew that he would get her note. "'Oh, so you have come at last,' she said, as soon as the drawing-room door was closed. She did not get up from her chair and there was therefore no danger of that immediate embrace, which he had felt that it would be almost equally dangerous to refuse or to accept. Yes, he said, I have come. And now sit down and make yourself comfortable. It's very bad out of doors, isn't it? Cold, but dry. With a wretched east wind, I know it, and I don't mean to stir out the whole day, so you may put your hat down and not think of going for the next hour and a half. It was true that he had his hat still in his hand, and he deposited it forthwith on the floor, feeling that, had he been master of the occasion, he would have got rid of it less awkwardly. I shouldn't wonder if Mary were to be here by and by. There was a sort of engagement that she and Jack de Baron were to come and play Bagatelle in the back drawing-room, but Jack never comes if he says he will, and I dare say she has forgotten all about it. He found that his purpose was altogether upset in the first place he could hardly begin about her unfortunate passion when she received him just as though he were an ordinary acquaintance and then the whole tenor of his mind was altered by this allusion to jack de baron had it come to this that he could not get through a day without having jack de baron thrown at his head he had from the first been averse to living in london but this was much worse than he had expected Was it to be endured that his wife should make appointments to play bagatelle with Jack de Baron by way of passing her time? I had heard nothing about it, he said with gloomy, truthful significance. It was impossible for him to lie even by a glance of his eye or a tone of his voice. He told it all at once, how unwilling he was that his wife should come out on purpose to meet this man, and how little able he felt himself to prevent it. "'Of course, dear Mary has to amuse herself,' said the lady, answering the man's look rather than his words, "'and why should she not?' "'I don't know that Bagatelle is a very improving occupation.' "'Or Jack, a very improving companion, perhaps. But I can tell you, George, that there are more dangerous companions than poor Jack. And then Mary, who is the sweetest, dearest young woman I know, is not impulsive in that way. She is such a very child. I don't suppose she understands what passion means. She has the gaiety of a lark, and the innocence. She is always soaring upwards, which is so beautiful. I don't know that there is much soaring upwards in Bagatelle. Nor in Jack de Baron, perhaps. But we must take all that as we find it. Of course Mary will have to amuse herself. She will never live such a life as your sisters live at Manor Cross. The word that best describes her disposition is gay. But she is not mischievous. I hope not. Nor is she passionate, you know what I mean. He did know what she meant, and was lost in amazement at finding that one woman, in talking of another, never contemplated the idea that passion could exist in a wife for her husband. He was to regard himself as safe, not because his wife loved himself, but because it was not necessary to her nature to be in love with any You need not be afraid, she went on to say i know jack au fond he tells me everything and should there be anything to fear i will let you know at once but what had all this to do with the momentous occasion which had brought him to berkeley square he was almost beginning to be sore at heart because she had not thrown herself into his arms there was no repetition of that but do you love me which had been so very alarming but at the same time so very exciting on the steps of the albert memorial And then there seemed to be a probability that the words which he had composed with so much care at his club would be altogether wasted. He owed it to himself to do, or to say something, to allude in some way to his love and hers. He could not allow himself to be brought there in a flurry of excitement, and there to sit till it was time for him to go, just as though it were an ordinary morning visit. You bade me come, he said, and so I came. Yes, I did bid you come. I would always have you come. That can hardly be, can it? My idea of a friend—of a man-friend, I mean, and a real friend—is someone to whom I can say everything, who will do everything for me, who will come if I bid him, and will like to stay and talk to me just as long as I will let him, who will tell me everything, and as to whom I may be sure that he likes me better than anybody else in the world, though he perhaps doesn't tell me so above once a month. And then, in return— well what in return i should think a good deal about him you know but i shouldn't want always to be telling him that i was thinking about him he ought to be contented with knowing how much he was to me i suppose that would not suffice for you lord george was disposed to think that it would suffice and that the whole matter was now being represented to him in a very different light than that in which he had hitherto regarded it the word friend softened down so many asperities With such a word in his mind he need not continually scare himself with the Decalogue. All the pleasure might be there, and the horrors altogether omitted. There would indeed be no occasion for his eloquence, but he had already become conscious that at this interview his eloquence could not be used. She had given everything so different a turn. "'Why not suffice for me?' he said. Only this, that all I did for my friend I should expect her to do for me but that is unreasonable who doesn't see that in the world at large men have the best of it almost in everything the husband is not only justified in being a tyrant but becomes contemptible if he is not so a man has his pocket full of money a woman is supposed to take what he gives her a man has all manner of amusements and what amusements have i you can come to me yes i can do that i cannot go to you but when you come to me If I am to believe that I am really your friend, then I am to be the tyrant of the moment. Is it not so? Do you think you would find me such a hard tyrant? I own to you freely that there is nothing in the world I like so much as your society. Do I not earn by that a right to some obedience from you, to some special observance?" All this was so different from what he had expected, and so much more pleasant. As far as he could look into it, and think of it at the pressure of the moment, he did not see any reason why it should not be as she proposed. There was clearly no need for those prepared words. There had been one embrace, an embrace that was objectionable, because had either his wife seen it or Mrs. Houghton, he would have been forced to own himself wrong. But that had come from sudden impulse, and need not be repeated. This that was now proposed to him was friendship, and not love. You shall have all observance, he said, with his sweetest smile. And as to obedience, but you are a man, and therefore must not be pressed too hard. And now I may tell you what is the only thing that can make me happy, and the absence of which would make me miserable. What thing? Your society. He blushed up to his eyes as he heard this. Now that, I think, is a very pretty speech, and I expect something equally pretty from you. He was much embarrassed but was at the moment delivered from his embarrassment by the entrance of his wife. "'Here she is,' said Mrs. Houghton, getting up from her chair. "'We have just been talking about you, my dear. If you have come for Bagatelle, you must play with Lord George, for Jack de Baron isn't here.' "'But I haven't come for Bagatelle.' "'So much the better, for I doubt whether Lord George would be very good at it. I have been made to play so much that I hate the very sound of the balls.' "'I didn't expect to find you here,' said Mary, turning to her husband. "'Nor I you, till Mrs. Houghton said that you were coming.' After that there was nothing of interest in their conversation. Jack did not come, and after a few minutes Lord George proposed to his wife that they should return home together. Of course she assented, and as soon as they were in the brougham, made a little playful attack upon him. "'You are becoming fond of Berkeley Square, I think.' "'Mrs. Houghton is a friend of mine, and I am fond of my friends,' he said gravely. "'Oh, of course. You went there to play that game with Captain de Baron? "'No, I didn't. I did nothing of the kind. Were you not there by appointment?' "'I told her that I should probably call. We were to have gone to some shop together, only it seems she has changed her mind. Why do you tell me that I had gone there to play some game with Captain de Baron? "'Bagatelle.' Bagatelle, or anything else, it isn't true. I have played Bagatelle with Captain De Baron, and I dare say I may again. Why shouldn't I? And if so, would probably make some appointment to play with him. Why not? That was all I said. What I suggested you had done is what you declare you will do. But I had done nothing of the kind. I know very well, from the tone of your voice, that you meant to scold me. You implied that I had done something wrong. If I had done it, it wouldn't be wrong, as far as I know but your scolding me about it when I hadn't done it at all is very hard to bear. I didn't scold you. Yes, you did, George. I understand your voice and your look. If you mean to forbid me to play bagatelle with Captain De Baron, or Captain Anybody Else, or to talk with Mr. This, or to laugh with Major That, tell me so at once. If I know what you want, I will do it. But I must say that I shall feel it very, very hard if I cannot take care of myself in such matters as that. If you are going to be jealous, I shall wish that I were dead. Then she burst out crying, and he, though he would not quite own that he had been wrong, was forced to do so practically by little acts of immediate tenderness. End of chapter 20